following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them to 1 Samuel chapter 31? 1 Samuel 31. You can use a phone or a tablet. Uh, 1 Samuel 31 can be Googled. Uh, There are hardback black Bibles under every chair. If you would like to grab a hold of those, open those up to 1 Samuel 31. That's on page 252 in those black Bibles. In your own personal Bible, I have no idea what number it is. Okay, mine is 358, if that helps you at all. Uh, it shouldn't, but 252 on those black Bibles. Once more, happy Mother's Day. Okay, happy Mother's Day to our mamas. Can we just hear it for moms real quick uh, in here? Appreciate you guys. Yeah. Hey, I know Mother's Day is a mixed bag. I just know it is. Uh, every holiday really is, but Mother's Day in particular is a mixed bag. For some, it marks the highest of highs. For others... It's just hard. It's got some lows involved and some emotions involved. And I just want, I want the women of our church, whether you aspire to be a mom or you had hoped to be a mom or you are a mom or you're estranged from your mom or anything else. I just want you to hear, hear, hear us say, we love you. We honor you today. None of us would be here without mothers. Literally, okay? And I went to public school and I know that, okay? So like, like none, none of us, none of us. And so I just want to encourage you mothers today. We love you. We honor you. We bless you today. And, and now normally we don't do like special holiday themed sermons like on Mother's Day. I'm not going to preach from like Mary, you know, or something like that. We don't normally do that. But, but I did look at the text today and I thought, hey, it's Mother's Day. So 1 Samuel 31 makes sense. Uh, this one is, is about dying, We're going to talk about death today. Happy Mother's Day, okay? That's my gift to you. The reason why we're doing that is because we've been working through 1 Samuel. We walk through books of the Bible here at Fathom primarily, and today we are in chapter 31. This is our 38th sermon in 1 Samuel, and today we come to the end of this book. I'm titling today's sermon, This is the End. This is the end. The end. And, and as we get to the end of this book, we come to the end of Saul, King Saul's life. And I hope as we study this last chapter, we are uh, challenged about the end of our lives. Okay? I, I think we need to think about how to live a life that ends in the way we desire. That's what we're going to talk about today. So today, I want you to start thinking as we're talking about legacy about your legacy. What's the legacy that you want to leave? What's the legacy you want to leave your family? What's the legacy you want to leave for your friends? What's the legacy you want to leave for those who you're in relationship with and maybe you even disciple? Like what what is the legacy you want to leave? Because we will, all of us, one day be at our end. This is the end. And, And so we're going to talk a little bit about your death Today And I know we don't want to talk about our death. In fact, most evangelical Christians like to try to pretend that death is not a reality and that it's not coming for you. But but hear me, the mortality rate in the United States of America is hovering at right about 100%. Even with COVID being over, right? It's still up there. I can't believe it. And historically, 
Historically, preachers in my position have almost always preached sermons on dying and how to end their life well. Preaching on death is a norm, even if we don't feel like it should be a norm in maybe our modern context. So today, I want you to think about your last day. This is the end. So that's what we're going to do. 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going to begin in verse 1. So follow along in your text with me. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkashua, the sons of Saul. So, this verse brings us up to speed. These things that just happened are the exact things that the spirit of Samuel, the dead prophet, had prophesied over Saul. Now, that's a weird story, and if you weren't with us, you're totally lost, so let me catch you up. In chapter 28, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul, the king of Israel, is in deep fear of these invading Philistines. The Philistines are invading Israel. He is in deep fear, so he goes to a medium, or some translations call her a witch, and she calls up or conjures up the spirit of Samuel, Israel's premier prophet who had died three chapters earlier than that. She calls Samuel's spirit up from the dead, uh, which, by the way, is forbidden in the Old Testament law. But Saul doesn't care. He's desperate. And the spirit of Samuel isn't happy. He's not like, oh, I'm glad you called me up from the, the grave. He's not pleased at all. And he tells Saul that Israel will be taken captive, that Saul and his sons will be struck down, and it's all going to happen before the sun sets on the next day. So that's not exactly what you want when you go to the palm reader. You're going to be dead, and all your sons are going to be dead, and your nation is going to be in captivity in the next 24 hours. That's what happened, and it's happening exactly as Samuel foretold. Now, it mentions three of Saul's sons have been killed. The one son that we have met is a guy named Jonathan. Jonathan is now dead. And gosh, if that isn't a sad statement for us to read as we have journeyed in this book, because Jonathan was David, King David, almost King David. Jonathan was David's best friend. He was supposed to be the next king, but he forfeited that kingdom to hand it to David. And he thought that he would actually sit next to David as David ruled, but that was not to be. That was not to be. He remained a true friend to David and surrendered his kingship to David. He actually remained a faithful son to his dad, Saul, even when Saul has gone off the rails. And in the end, his life is ended because of his dad, Saul. So Jonathan remained faithful in the calling that God had for him. And, and we're just, we're gonna, we don't have time to spend on Jonathan today, but we are supposed to take note that Jonathan is a model for us. He laid aside his own kingdom. He laid aside his own ambitions. He laid aside a kingdom that he could never have had for a kingdom that he, 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 he uh, could never lose. So some will call this a tragedy. Others will call this a triumph because Jonathan, though died young, finished well. 
That's what we're supposed to get from Jonathan. He is a tragic hero of this text. And I just want to stop for one moment in these first couple verses to make my first point this morning about the end, about the end, the end of your life. The first thing you should be thinking about is the legacy you leave your family. That's the first thing that we need to think about when this is the end, is our family. One of the hardest parts for me to to reconcile with this whole book is Saul's seeming lack of care for his family, especially his son, Jonathan, especially Jonathan. I mean, he tries to kill him with a spear at one point. Remember that? If your dad literally tries to kill you, that's a wound that you're going to need some counseling for. Seriously. His daughters, he tries to use them as as political pawns to get David killed. I mean, it's very, very hurtful to think about how he handled his family. But there are a couple things that I think we should consider when we talk about family legacy. For each one of us, whether you have children or not, you have family. And so what's the legacy you want to leave for them? So two thoughts that I have when talking about family. There's plenty more, but here's the two I have for you this morning. First, if you're a parent... If you are a parent, please be careful. Please be careful because our children always feel the effects of our mistakes. Our children always feel the effects of our mistakes and they may actually pay a price for them. Now, that's not to put any undue pressure on any one of us who have children, but it's a responsibility as a parent, that we must reckon with. One of the lies that the enemy tells us, especially to men, I'm sure it happens to women, but as a man, I'll just tell you, especially to guys, one of the lies that's fed to us is that our choices affect nobody but ourselves. This isn't hurting anyone, is what we'll say. But that's, hear me, the most ignorant viewpoint I can think of. That's pure ignorance. What you do affects the lives and maybe, maybe even the eternities of many connected to you. So my first thought when it comes to family legacy is you need to be careful. You don't live in a vacuum. Those kids are watching everything you do. Listen, parents of adult children in here, your adult children are still watching you. They are. They're either watching you for what they should do or what they shouldn't do, but they're watching. They're watching you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Listen, one of the very, very best things that any Christian can do for their family, for their legacy, is to pray. One of the best things that you can do is pray for your family members. I'm serious, like grab a hold of them. Grab them, lay a hand on them, pray for them, pray with them. Prayer is actually one of the best pieces of legacy that you can leave. So here's my example. My, my, uh, my wife and I, we pray with our daughter Harper every night. Every night before bed, we pray for her. We pray for, uh, we pray for our family members. Like we have a list, literally, that we have memorized that we just pray straight through. We pray for some of her friends some of her friends, specifically friends who aren't Christians. We pray for them to know Jesus. Um, In my house, we pray for every single dog and horse that we've ever met. (laughs) Every single night in our prayers, we pray for these. I don't have the heart to tell her that none of them have souls, all right? 
uh, but I'll just correct her theology later. I mean, that's fine. But, but we, every night we pray for all of the horses and dogs that we know. And, I'm, and, and if I'm honest, if I'm honest, when I was younger or when she was younger, I was younger too, but when she was younger, sometimes at bedtime, listen, I was just so exhausted like after working and then trying to care for like a toddler, I was so dang exhausted and I, ju- I just wanted, I, did, I wanted to skip out on prayer. Honestly, I just, I did not want to pray with my daughter and specifically pray for like every hamster we had ever met. Like I just didn't feel like I wanted to do that. And so I would try to slip out. When I'd lay her down, I'd try to slip out before prayer. Anybody else want to admit that? Your pastor doesn't want to pray sometimes, okay? Just letting you know, okay? Safe place. I wanted to skip out on praying with my baby girl, but, but she would call me out on that. I remember she was two or three years old, and she would say, Daddy, you pray me? Like she knew. Even at a very young age, she knew. It marked her. And, and we would pray. So we'd pray before bed. I would, I would pray for us every time we would sit down for a meal. Even before she knew how to talk, we would make her fold her hands and we would pray before meals. And once she started to talk, she started uh, to ask if she could pray before dinner, which was fine. It was, really, it was really cute, actually. Sometimes she would literally just pray gibberish, like just gibberish, and she'd just start babbling on. And I thought maybe it was tongues, <laughs> all right? And so I, I was, I, I was going to send her a timeout. Uh, um, no, no, we, we spank, actually. So uh, that, was, that, was the, that was the plan. But listen, she just, she saw mommy and daddy pray and she just wanted to pray. She just wanted to. Even at a young age, she knew. And to this day, my daughter will pray at dinner. She'll pray before we eat our steak or whatever. And she prays for us. And she, like yesterday, she prayed for mom. She prayed for Marcy on Mother's Day. She prays for some of you. When she knows that there are things going on, she's prayed for you guys at dinner, at our meals. Like, gosh, it's just a good thing. I cannot overstate how important prayer is to the legacy that you leave for your family, for your family. So moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, Man, pray for your kiddos, but pray for each other. Pray, lay a hand on your spouse. If you've got roommates, maybe you don't, pray for them. Pray for them. Bless them all the time. Every day, do this. Because you don't know when it will be the end. You just don't know. So pray for them. This is a low bar. It's a low, okay, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, listen, I don't know what to say when I pray. I don't know what to say. I don't have big spiritual words. I'm not good I'm, as a prayer. I'm not, I'm not good at praying. And now hear me, you, 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 you don't have to be a seminary trained theologian to kill this one. You just don't. You just pray. Pray what you've got. Pray who you are. You say this, God, bless them. You lay a hand on them. God, grow them. On your little ones, God, save them. God, move in them. That's what you do. That's all you have to do. God, do these things that I want you to do in their lives. You can do this. Men, you come to me sometimes and you're like, how do I become the spiritual leader of my home? How do I lead my family well spiritually? That's how you do it. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to learn Greek. You don't frankly have to have read the whole Bible. You just need to pray. Get a hand on your kid, pray for him. Get a hand on your wife, pray for him. Get a hand on your parent, pray over them. Call them on the phone, pray over the phone. Do it. Prayer, okay? You following me here? This is how we leave a legacy for our family, we pray. 
And this is the first part of Saul's failure in his legacy. He fails at leaving a good legacy for his family. But there's more. Look at verse three in the text with me. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest one of these, uh, lest these uncircumcised, that's the Philistines, come and thrust me through and mistreat me. All right, let's pause right there. Uh, I would be forlorn if I did not pause for a second and talk just briefly about what's happening here because we need to talk about suicide for just a moment. This is a hot topic in our culture, but this is also in the scriptures. So I just did a little quick research. In 2020, uh, almost 46,000 Americans took their own lives. 46,000. There were almost, there were an estimated 1.2 million attempts for suicide. 46,000 uh, were successful. And this was interesting. The rate of suicide is highest actually in middle-aged white men. Higher than any other demographic, the percentage of middle-aged white men is higher, even than, than we might think. I thought maybe young people, but that's not the case. Now, biblically, the Bible only records six incidents where a person commits suicide or takes their own life. Okay, all of them can be found in the Old Testament with the exception of one in the New Testament, and that's Judas Iscariot. There are only six in the Bible. One of them is right here, okay? Uh, it is also worth noting that in each of these cases uh, in the Bible, the suicide is the end of a life that did not, at least in its latter stages, meet with God's approval. It wasn't uh, healthy, God-fearing people who were taking their lives in the scripture. There was something that had gone awry in their relationship with God. Now, that's where our culture is. That's kind of uh, where the Bible is. Here's, let's talk theology for a second. In Christian theology, people will often ask the question, is committing suicide the unpardonable sin? Is it the unforgivable sin? And historically, Christians have answered this differently. People will sometimes answer yes to that question because suicide leaves no room for repentance. It leaves no room for repentance. But uh, I just want to say, I've read the Bible, 20 years of being a pastor. I've read it through and through. I've been to seminary. I've studied this stuff. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that suicide is an unforgivable sin. It doesn't say that. The, the book doesn't. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that all sins, past sins, present sins, and even future sins that we would commit are forgiven, not by us repenting and confessing those sins. They are actually forgiven through faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your 
Eternity is not dependent on you covering your bases of confessing every single sin you might have or else future sins would need to be confessed and you're never sure if you're covered. But faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross is what saves you. Not your confession. You are called to confess and repent. Yes, but that's in response to the saving work that Jesus has already done in your life. So, one's eternal destiny is sealed and set at the moment of justifying faith in Christ. So, I I felt like I have to be clear about this because there's a lot of confusion, even in Christian circles, even in evangelical churches about this. While suicide is clearly a sin in the Bible, it's taking a life, it's murder. It is clearly a sin. It is not in a different category than any other sin. And therefore, it is not the unpardonable sin. So that's one piece. Second, it would be foolish of me not to take note in the cultural rise of suicide in our cultural moment. It'd be foolish of us not to just take pause for a second and say this is on the upswing culturally right now. Suicidal thoughts, ideations, and even attempts, hear me, they're real. Whatever you think is leading to them, that's what's happening culturally right now. So here's, here's, here's the, the, the pleading moment. If you are struggling, please come talk to us. You wouldn't believe how many conversations I have about this with people. With people you wouldn't think I'd be having these conversations with. If you are struggling with this, please come talk to us. As somebody personally who has struggled with anxiety and panic attacks and depression, I mean, y'all, I've got literal like mental health issues running in my bloodline. As somebody in that position, gosh, you are not going to find anything but grace and compassion and us wanting to bear with you and walk alongside you in this. We'll walk with you through anything in this church, okay? You might, anything you have going on, we want to be with you in that. So I just feel like I have to touch on that because this is what Saul is requesting. Saul is requesting an assisted suicide from his armor bearer at this moment. He just asked his armor bearer to kill him, to help end his life. Because, the text says, he does not want the uncircumcised Philistines to shame him or torture him as they had done with Samson back in the book of Judges, if you remember. So he orders his armor bearer to kill him. Now look again at verse four. David said to him, uh, I'm sorry, wrong verse four. That's second Samuel. We're not there yet. Verse four, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, He also fell upon his sword and died with him. So it's at this point I want to stop and make my second point. My second point about the end of our lives. Hear me, the second thing that you should be thinking about is the legacy of your faith. The legacy of your faith. Yes, your family, but also your faith. Saul's lack of faith is on display in this moment. That's what we're seeing. He has has just watched his three sons killed in battle. 
Like he has just witnessed his own children slaughtered in front of him. And the text says that he is still more concerned about his own well-being from the Philistines. That's why he wants his life taken. It's not because of the desperation he felt from his children. The text clearly says that he was afraid that the Philistines would abuse him. And I just don't think that's terribly shocking considering Saul's life up to this point. Now, work with me here, okay? I wondered as I was studying this this week, why isn't he finally wrestling with God in this moment? Why isn't Saul having a deathbed conversation with God in this moment? Like, why wouldn't he be begging God for forgiveness and trying to get right with God in this moment? Well, Saul's whole life up to this point has been consumed with what others would do or what others would think about him. And I, I got this answer. Why would he just be able to flip the switch in this moment of desperation on his deathbed? That's just not who he's been his whole life. And this might just speak into uh, some of us who might think, hey, I can live however I want. I can live however I want right now because at the end of my life, I can just repent and God's going to accept me. You've maybe heard that. Maybe you've thought that. And hear me, that's true. That is true. God will accept you on your deathbed if you genuinely repent of your sins, even if it's the last thing you do and you've lived a horrific life up until that point. But be very careful here. What we see in Saul is that who you are in life will be who you are at your death. You might think, I'll just flip that switch and repent and fall to my knees at my hospital bed. And I would just say, are you sure? Because our boy Saul didn't. Hear me, you will leave a legacy of faith behind. So I have a good question to ask yourself on this one. What's most important to you? What's most important to you? And, and, and hear me, you might actually say, hey, well, God's first in my life. God's first, family second, career third, you know, whatever it is. You've got your little list in your brain. But, but really, if you ask those closest to you, hey, what, what do you think the most important things to me are? Would those answers line up? If you were to ask your, your closest people that. So I asked this of my daughter back when she was three, because all three-year-old answers are good fodder for sermon illustrations, okay? But I asked her that when she was three. I said, sweetie, what's the most important thing in the world to daddy? I asked her that. And her very first, I mean, I swear, her first response was, me. And I was like, yes, dad of the year, right? Yes, you're right. You are, you are important to me, sweetie. And I said, okay, well, what else? What else is important to daddy? Her second answer, frozen. <laughs> and I said, well, that's important to you. And I watch it 
on repeat with you. So uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. What else? Like what else? Sweetie, what else is, is most important to daddy? And she goes, pipes, because I smoke a tobacco pipe. And I'm like, dang it. How did that beat out mom? All right. Like <laughs> seriously, but, but hear me. It, it reminded me that, that what I say I value and what I show that I value can be seen very differently by those around me. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with having hobbies, okay? There's nothing wrong with, that, with being passionate about things. But if your family would say that, that it's golf, or it's sports, or it's skiing, or it's whatever it is that's the most important thing to you, listen, what... If what you want your faith legacy to be doesn't match up with your lifestyle, then hear me, your lifestyle needs to change. If what your faith legacy is what, if if what it is that you want it to be is not matching up with what your family and your friends and those closest to you would say you're projecting, then you need to change how you live. You'll leave a legacy for your family and you'll leave a legacy of your faith. Okay, one more. Verse six. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. So notice, at the end of Saul's life, the text says that the Philistines are now occupying Israel. They see that that the king is dead, and the Israelites flee from their towns, and the Philistines move in. They take over the territory. Now, I told you this way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, but there's this little trick that I learned in seminary when studying these historical books, and it's this. The Philistines are the scourge of God's people. That's why we talk about the Philistines all the time. They are the scourge of God's people, and we can actually look at the relationship between Israel and the Philistines and who's winning and who's losing as something of a barometer for how God's people were doing in their relationship with the Lord. So what we're seeing here at the end of the first king of Israel's life is that Saul's end is more than just a personal affair. Okay, he, he has not only damned himself, but in some ways he's damned the very people that he was supposed to lead. Again, this comes back to your life, your sins do not only affect you. Frankly, they don't even just affect your family. They affect everybody around you. And so the people are fleeing from their cities. Look at verse eight. We'll finish this chapter here. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan, 
And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went at night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Betshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is how the book of 1 Samuel ends. This is the end. Saul is dead. His sons are dead. David's in exile in Philistia. Israel is now occupied by the Philistines. The prophet Samuel, dead. The priests of Yahweh, killed. There's no king in Israel. You see why I called this sermon series Prophets, Priests, and Kings? That's what we've just witnessed. Devastation. Israel had desired earnestly for a king so that they could be like all the other nations because they didn't trust God to meet their needs and they thought, Saul, he's, he's our guy. He's going to be the perfect king. He looks the part. He acts the part. He must be the guy. But Saul turns out to be a coward. He consults a witch in time of trouble. He doesn't defeat the Philistines. In fact, they've lost ground to the Philistines, and now the Philistines are living in their towns. And then Saul's last act is to watch his own sons die. Then he commits suicide. His armor is stripped from his body. His head is taken off, and he is put on display in the temple of Ashtaroth, a Philistine god, and his body is fastened to the wall of a Philistine city to hang in shame until the birds eat his flesh away. A worse ending could not be imagined to the life of the first king of Israel. There's not many more devastating moments in Israel's history than this. This is the end. And it's here that I want to make our last point about the end. The third part that you should be thinking about is the legacy of your future. You like those Fs today? Family, faith, and future. Yeah, your future you need to be thinking about. What happens to you after, you're di- after you die? Absolutely. But there's also a future for everyone around you. Everyone around you. Israel is affected by Saul. His sons are affected by him. Everyone around you has a future. And when you come to your end, you need to ask the question, what is my legacy for everyone else? And here's the great news. Here's the great news. No matter where you're at in life, it's never too late to start your legacy. Whether you're very young in here and you're not even close to thinking about the end, or whether you're closer to that point in life, but you look back and you're like, I have not done the legacy work that I wish I had. Listen, if you are alive, it's never too late to begin. Because for some of you, maybe this idea has actually been a rough one to think through. Some of you, maybe you've already raised your kids. Or you don't have any kids. Or you've made some big mistakes in your life with your friends and your family. You've ostracized some people. 
Or you've been so backwards on your life's priorities that all you focused on is yourself. You say, just like Saul, all I've been about is me this whole life. And some of you are in the place where you're just like, my legacy is a wreck already. I look back at my life and all there is is chaos. But hear me, hear me. If you're living and breathing, it's never too late to start your legacy. It's never too late. Gosh, start it with your grown children. I've already said this. Parents, they need you more than they can even express to you. Start it with your grandkids. I hear stories all the time of patriarchs, matriarchs in families who have made unbelievable impacts on the next generation. Start it with young men and women that you have here at our church. We're blessed with a very young population here at Fathom. Reach out, reach in, go deep with them. Start it with your spouse, start it with your friends, start it with your neighbors. You can start this thing. See, our legacies need not be defined from your first day to today. They can actually be defined from today to your last day. You can change your legacy. And so I know for some of you today, you're like, man, my legacy needs to change. And I just want to encourage you this morning. First Samuel is actually a contrast book. It's not only about Saul. Because there's another king. There's another anointed one. And he will show up in 2 Samuel and he will be crowned a man after God's own heart. In Saul, we see a man after his own In David, we see a man after God's best. And that's the contrast, and that's what's being presented to each one of us. You can be a Saul, or you can be a David. You can pursue yourself and your selfish gains, or you can pursue God and what he wants for you and for those around you. And hear me, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, you have a God who's seeking men and women who are after his heart. That's the legacy that you want to leave. And and hear me, if you want that, he will bless you and take you back and write a new legacy for you, a new future. So listen, if you're an older woman or man in this room, and by older, I mean like older than somebody. (laughs) Like if you can look around and be like, that person's younger than me, you're old, okay? So, so if you are older in here, even if it's just a few years, but if you are older, here's my encouragement. Get to know a younger man or woman in this church. Man, get to know them and bless them and encourage them. Nobody ever does this anymore. Nobody ever does this. Most of our younger, and not hear me, we got college students, we got 20-somethings. Most of our younger Christians aren't even sure if they're doing a good job or a bad job at life. You hear the word adulting? Oh man, adulting's hard. Hear me, that's not even a real word. (laughs) Nobody had the word adulting until adults stopped investing in younger people. So I'm not putting it all on us, but it's on us. It's on us not to teach them how to, to walk with them into adulthood. That's what we're here for. They don't know what they're doing. They're morons. I love them. I love them. But you guys are a beautiful mess, okay? 
Listen, they're here at Fathom. They're studying their Bible. They're going to school. They're working their jobs. They're raising their families. They're praying and they're serving and they're trying to figure it out. And it might just change their life if somebody older than them came alongside of them and laid a hand on their shoulder and just said, you are killing it. Man, you are killing it. The world would be a better place if there were more people like you. Heaven would be nearer to earth if there were more doing what you're doing. Encourage them. Build them up. That's a legacy. That's a legacy for you and for them. It's a future. Listen, your life matters in setting up the legacies for the future of everyone and anyone around you. Now hear me, you already know all this stuff. Like I've not told you anything new today. I mean, maybe you didn't know there were six suicides in the Bible. I don't know. But, but you didn't learn anything new today, right? Like you already know that you're only alive once. You already know that you only get one shot at this thing. Right? You know this. You know that you're only passing through this life and it's going to be over before you know it. What I'm saying to you today is when you get to the end, When you get to the end, I don't want you to experience what Saul did. His end is full of regret and sadness, of hurt and suffering, of pain and destruction. What I'm saying is that when you get to the end, when you get there, I don't want you to be where Saul's at. So let me end with this illustration. Uh, uh, I heard a friend of mine, Ryan Kwan, who's a pastor out in California, use this illustration. Uh, imagine that you're, you, you've saved up for like an epic vacation. We're getting to summer, so like this isn't, shouldn't be too, you're thinking about vacation, uh, maybe like Hawaii or something, you know, something that you had to save up money for and you got the pamphlet and you started thinking about it and hoping about it and wishing about it, right? And you changed like the screensaver on your phone or the wallpaper on your phone to like a little beach just to like motivate you every time you check your phone 6,434 times a day. And, and you've done that and you, so you start saving money. Right, like Hawaii, I don't think anybody's just got some some flush cash. They're just dumping on Hawaii. But like, you're starting to save some money. You're working extra hours. Maybe you get a side hustle. You're doing something so that you can start saving for this awesome vacation. Maybe you're you're making your own lunch. You're not going to Chipotle anymore. I don't know. But you're doing your thing. Okay, you're doing everything you can to get to the destination of that uh, of, of that vacation. So after months. Months and months, maybe even years of preparation, of saving, of scrimping, you finally get to the day when you're going to go on that vacation. You're finally at the time you're going to go on that vacation, so you get to the airport, probably a day and a half early, right? I just went to the airport this week. It's insanity, okay? But you get to the airport, and you finally get to your gate, and you sit down, and you look at your plane, and you're like, it's happening, it's, it's, it's finally here. I'm going to Hawaii. I can almost smell the salt air. I can almost hear the waves crashing on the beach. I'm ready for this. In that moment, I'll tell you something that you never do. I'll tell you something you never do. You never get to the, to the gate an hour early, or like three hours early if you're type A, right? But, but you never get to the gate early and think to yourself, man, I better squeeze every ounce of benefit out of this terminal that I possibly can. You've never been there. 
You're never like, oh, I gotta sit at every single gate. I gotta get my money's worth, I gotta sit at every gate, and you know that little plug? I gotta charge everything that I can because I gotta just like squeeze all of the juice out of this experience. Man, I better get a cup of coffee at Caribou Coffee and an ultra dry muffin, even though it's really bad, right? And it probably costs 12 bucks, but it's like, I gotta do it, I gotta do it. And I gotta go to Hudson News. You know that weird place? Hudson News? And I haven't read a physical magazine in like a decade, but I need some of them. Right, I gotta take advantage of this. Today's my day. I gotta experience everything that this terminal has to offer. I gotta see every shop. I gotta get every benefit from this. You would never do such a thing. Why? Because you're not there for the terminal, you're there for the destination. This is the end. Listen, church. So many of us are living for the terminal. We are, we're living, we're living for the terminal. And you're so focused on getting every benefit out of this life, out of this terminal, that you're gonna miss the destination, the ultimate goal, the trip, the vacation. Hear me, legacy is all the planning for the destination. It's all the planning and the hoping and the saving and the responsibility and the preparation for your final destination. It's, it's focusing on your family and on your faith and on your future. But hear me, friends. Don't get distracted by the terminal. Don't, don't live for Hudson News, for that half a McDonald's and the line halfway around. Like, don't live for that. Live for the destination. In focusing on your family and your faith and your future, you're preparing not just yourself, but everyone around you for the destination. So hear me real quick before we end. You're gonna die. Happy Mother's Day, okay? <laughs> you're gonna die. I'm gonna die. We are all going to die. It would be unkind and unloving of me not to tell you that. And you can live in one of two ways. You can live for the terminal. And you can try and soak it up for all that it's worth. Or you can keep your eyes focused on the destination. So I just want to commend you. Live for the end. Live for the end. Live for the destination. Live out your legacy. And that's the end of 1 Samuel. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today. Lord, I know it's Mother's Day, and I know that I just talked about death and suicide. And so I ask forgiveness for that. But Lord, I also think this is so apropos on a day where we focus on families and we focus on mothers and we focus on sometimes the joys and also the failures that come alongside of that. I think it's really apt that we talk about legacy. And God, I know there are men and there are women in here where this topic is like a, it's like a, a sensitive wound. When we start touching it and we start poking at it, it sends shockwaves of pain throughout our bodies we know we've missed the mark. We know we've fallen short. We know our legacy isn't what it ought to be. 
And Father, I thank you that the good news is that you take broken things and you repair them. That you take tarnished things and you make them beautiful. That you take sinful things and you make them holy, fit for use. And so, Father, I pray for each one here as we look at our lives, as we think about our end, God, that you'd correct us lovingly, carefully, but that you would correct our lives, that we might live a legacy out for however many days or weeks or months or years that you have for us. And that when we come to our end, we would board that plane and we would buckle that seatbelt and we would know that the destination we are headed for is better because of the legacy we have left behind. So Jesus, thank you for the, the, the good gift of these holy scriptures and this story. I pray it's a warning to our hearts and an encouragement. So we pray these things, Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.